0: natural in the course of a retreat that we have periods when we have uncertainty in the mind uncertainty about what we should do in the practice uncertainty about how to deal with problems or issues that come up Uncertainty about our own ability to practice, and so on. One simple, quite effective, at least temporary remedy, you might say, is to come back to think of the Buddha. Remind yourself why you ordained, why you came to the Buddha's teachings. Remind yourself who the Buddha was, what inspires you about the Buddha and the qualities, the wisdom, the compassion Could be in a moment of fear <clears throat> or uncertainty about the future or some situation one's in or just the mood one's experiencing. And the Buddha said, when you're afraid, just think of his name or recite his name. So we have the name Buddha or Buddha. And if nothing else, it cuts through the mental proliferation we might be experiencing at that moment. If you put your mindfulness on Buddha then at that moment the mind can't spin off into other kinds of mental proliferation. So in our tradition, the Thai forest tradition, Sanjian Man, Lumpo Cha, as just two of the examples in recent history, practitioners, then they also reminded us use Buddha as a way to anchor the mind in the present moment. Often one can see very quick and amazing results in just. Calming the mind down from various moods of emotions that have arisen. And also, it tends to start to flood the mind with a sense of more confidence and stability, what we were lacking previously reflecting on the Buddha, the qualities of the Buddha, reminding ourselves of our original teacher. And as Buddhist monks we're sometimes referred to as sons of the Buddha. This can warm the mind and the heart very quickly and send it off in a different direction even though there may be A lot of mental proliferation, even stress or suffering, it will tend to steer the mind away from that and into more wholesome, what you might still call proliferation, sankhara, mental formations, but in a more skillful way, starts to brighten the mind. And it's from that we then may be able to reflect more deeply on our experience at that time (coughs) and see it more objectively, understand better what's going on. Maybe see our thoughts as just thoughts arising and passing away, or emotional experiences doubts or worries that seem very real and important might start to shrink and we can see them more as just what they are, just mental states coming and going. So in that sense we never need to feel lost, even though that feeling might arise, but we don't need to cling on to it because we can always return to the recollection of the Buddha, his name, his qualities, and particularly this quality of just knowing that Buddha represents and knowing in the present moment. From that knowing, we start to understand the truth better, see the truth better. So, knowing leads to understanding leads to insight insight into the Dhamma. And the Dhamma means the way things are, which so often our mind is far away from as it gets caught into our mental constructions, proliferations but bringing the mind back to Buddha brings it back to the Dhamma. We start to see things as Dhamma rather than from our old habit of self-view. Ever since we've been born, we've fallen into this habit, the delusion of self. And unless we've been very fortunate to have heard the Dhamma from an early age, which for most of us I think is not the case, we've tended to interpret all our experience from this sense of self. It's been reinforced by the people around us and our own ideas and thinking. So all our sense contact since we've been born. Sight, sound, taste, smell, touch. And all the ideas, concepts that pop into our mind. for have always prompted sense of self. This is me, mine. This belongs to me. This is who I am. And that's where our experience of stress and suffering comes from. Because it takes us away from the Dhamma, from the truth. And when we don't see the Dhamma, we don't see the Buddha. We don't see the Buddha, we don't see the Dhamma. Lay people always talk about how difficult it is to practice the Buddhist teachings in lay life. It's so challenging because of the distractions. The unsupportive conditions, duties and responsibilities and so on. And that's true. Now we've come into the robes and in living in a quiet place. We have more of a suitable situation to practice come to the Dhamma, to see things in terms of Dhamma, rather than in terms of self and delusion. But nevertheless, wherever we are, as lay people or bhikkhus, we're facing the same problem as our old habit. The mind always coming back to a sense of self, creating a self, identifying with a self based around the identification with this body, with the mind, with the sense contact. We can all remember when we were lay people and how you just go along with with the habit. We always identifying with our possessions the place we live the people around us family friends as these are my family my friends my belongings and then on to the more subtle levels of my thoughts and feelings my views my opinions what i believe in what i think is right and good what i think is wrong We've been doing this for a long time. And now we have an opportunity to really look at this process by which suffering arises with the sense of self-identification with our experience of this body and mind. But to do that we have to train. We have to practice is why we're here, why we take up the robes and the lifestyle of a bhikkhu. They say, so if we don't train this mind, then it's like living in a house with a leaky roof. You can live, live there, but it's not comfortable, it's not convenient. In Living in a human mind, with a human mind, that's not trained, you can do it. And millions and billions of people do. But it's not convenient, I meaning it's subject to stress and suffering. Because we don't understand the truth. There's always things going wrong, physically and mentally. There's always a sense of things not being right. In short, we might say there's always a sense of dukkha. Keep returning to this sense of dukkha. The wise ones are the ones who have an intuition that there is maybe a way out. If they're lucky, they come to meet with the Buddha's teachings. But for many, they don't have that intuition. They just follow along. And rather than seek a way out of dukkha, just try and Do the best they can. Especially nowadays, with the material wealth and developments in the world, then a huge number of people, particularly the affluent members of society, spend their days, their time trying to minimize the dukkha, avoid the dukkha as much as they can through developing. Different ways to uh, experience sensual satisfaction, if only momentarily. But never achieving what they really set out to, to, to achieve. All that the world can give us in this way, the happiness of the senses, the wealth, the reputation, the fame and the fortune, the good health and the different kinds of pleasure, we we probably all understand now that's limited, unreliable. However much you chase after it, <coughs> it never lasts, and it can never be truly satisfying. <coughs> so now we turn our attention to the Buddha's teachings to look for a way out, a way out of dukkha to train this body and mind using the Dhamma Vinaya. Really we're very fortunate because we do have a system of training that's structured it's been explained well it's been explained better than anything else in the world it's the Swakata Dhamma we have the suttas and the Tripitaka and the Vinaya available to us and we have living masters like Lumpur Cha and Lumpo Anand who can explain the way of practice those who have actually found some True peace, true understanding from the practice can help to explain to us. So we have a system of training. That's our good fortune. It's up to us to incline our minds towards it, to make use of it. As Lungta Mahaboha used to say, if you have a good teacher, a place of training, then this is a tremendous shortcut in your spiritual path. As a good teacher and a system of training will, if you stick to it and you keep referring to it, will help to you to help you to cut out some of the doubts and uncertainty, stop you making taking wrong turns down dead ends, or actually doing things that are harmful. It's up to us to appreciate that. You appreciate the the value of a teacher and a system of training. Often as we come to the practice because of this habit of always seeking sensual pleasure and trying to just temporarily escape from dukkha, we often are a bit reluctant to commit to something that seems structured, a system, You know, the very doubts that cause us suffering often make us hesitant to commit to the practice. The more we get caught up into the doubts and the hesitancy, then the less we can get back from the practice. Really, if we do anything in the practice of Dhamma Vinaya, the more we can commit to it, as they would say, 100%, then generally you find that's the way you get more back from it. In Thai, they have that phrase Sakdewa, which I often talk about. Often they use it when we're reflecting on things to say, just to see feelings as feelings or see the body as body. Sakdewa means just or merely. They have another way they use it. They say when we come to practice the Dhamma Vinaya, follow the way of training, learn to meditate. It's very easy to have an attitude which is where we're just doing it in a kind of perfunctory way, casual way. And they use this phrase sakteva, so sitting meditation, just sitting, meaning just casually sitting there, the body is sitting there, but the mind is not really putting forth effort or doing chores or doing chanting or different aspects of our daily life. Often you'll notice how there's not really a commitment to it as a way of training. It's just passing the time or just doing it to get rid of the, the duty that lies before one to move on to the next thing maybe we have preferences, what we like, what we don't, and so the parts of the daily routine or the parts of the practice we're bored with or don't like, then often we just want to skip over them. But then we're losing out on the value of having a structured system of training. The more we can appreciate that every part of the training has some value, has some meaning, then you start to appreciate how you can really can change your experience as a human being open your mind up to the truth bring up mindfulness and bring up wisdom but we have to have that sense of commitment even a simple act like say bowing to the buddha if done mindfully with commitment then it immediately will bring up some wholesome, skillful states of mind, bring up mindfulness, cut through some of the mental proliferation, even vacuuming my floor, sweeping a path, the same. When we bring that sense of commitment, care and attention to all our activities, it will reflect on the state of mind and help the mind to actually cut through some of the habits and the conditioning that we're so easily caught up in. Ajahn Chah used to say when we're caught into the more kind of unmindful, daydreaming type of states of mind where we're not really fully aware, fully committed to what we're doing and we're no different from the chickens on the farm you see the farmer bringing rice and think "Oh, this farmer loves us and they gobble up the rice but they never realise he's just waiting and weighing them up for the day when he'll slaughter them for food we're really like that if we're just going through the motions of the practice just doing it, merely doing it but without that real sense of mental commitment well, we'll tend not to get that much back from it. Often when we are caught into uncertainty and doubt, then we tend to focus on what's wrong with our practice or how we feel we're not achieving anything or what we should be, but we often overlook all the good that we've done so far and all the good that we're doing. All of us have come here, we're committed to the training at least on one level or another. Merely just keeping the precepts or the Vinaya already is an amazing gift to the world. You may feel that the development of meditation or understanding What the Buddha taught on a deeper level is still beyond you, but keeping the Vinaya, which you're all doing very effectively at the moment, if you're keeping the Vinaya, you're, in the Buddha's words, you're providing immeasurable safety, security and benefit to all beings everywhere. They're just being, practicing the harmless life of a bhikkhu. Any being that comes into contact with us can be assured that we won't harm them. Whether it's human, animal or something, a being in another realm. As long as you're committed to your precepts and the Vinaya then that's the gift you're giving out to the world. And then you get a share back from that. And you share in that happiness and that safety and security you're generating. The same with all the other aspects of the Vinaya you're keeping. You're providing respect for life forms, for property, respect for peoples. Habits and traditions, even if they're different from you, their beliefs and so on. You know, Bhikkhu stands for harmlessness, non violence, humility, patience, and so on. All of that is something you're giving, offering to the world and the entire world at the same time. It's not like you're just keeping the eye for the people just the people you meet on a daily basis, anyone you meet or could meet, potentially meet, anywhere in this world, will be benefiting from your Vinaya practice. These kind of reflections help balance up the mind when we think about what we're doing and why, and sometimes get caught into self-criticism or self-doubt. You can reflect, you know, every day since you've been ordained. You haven't killed, you haven't stolen, you haven't... uh, You've been celibate, you haven't got drunk, you haven't told lies or abused people. This is an amazing gift to the world. The longer you do it, even if nothing else happens in your life, that would be something that would always if you're mindful of it and aware of it, always be a source of happiness, inspiration to yourself. More importantly, it provides a sense of inner calm, inner peace that you can use as you're developing mindfulness on a deeper level. Keeping the Vinaya naturally trains the mind to understand more clearly what is a wholesome intention, wholesome mental state, what is an unwholesome mental state. It's that clarity and that wisdom that's so vital in training the mind on a deeper level to develop some real mindfulness and equanimity and wisdom and to steady the mind so that we can really see the deeper truths the Buddha was pointing to we have to, first of all, be able to recognize what are wholesome mental states, what are unwholesome mental states, and then act accordingly. Having recognized them, know which ones are to be maintained and developed, and which ones are to be abandoned. And that's an ongoing practice in all postures and all activities. you might summarize that the practice of right effort in association with right view is to support the arising of right mindfulness as long as unwholesome mental states rooted in different forms of craving and attachment as long as they overwhelm our mind take over the mind then mindfulness is not established the practice of right mindfulness the four satipatthanas the development of samadhi the development of insight into the three characteristics can't take place if it's just a moment momentary hiccup in the mind where one is caught into a thought of lust or greed, anger worry or doubt then it's a momentary a moment where We can't develop mindfulness, can't see the truth of the way things are. When we establish mindfulness in the same way, then that's a moment when we have no greed, anger, delusion in the mind. And then there is a chance for the mind to look back and see the true nature of, of itself, of the feelings, perceptions, the thoughts that are coming up. In brief, this is a training that we're doing every day in training the mind to abandon unwholesome states, develop wholesome states, and maintain and develop mindfulness, steady, continuous mindfulness. nature of craving which is the main obstacle to this is that it it's what the mind is used to falling under the influence of craving we've been doing it for so long it really takes effort takes this commitment this determination to you might say struggle with it It's a struggle. Craving is the way of the world, what we're used to, what we've followed for so long. Now we're training in mindfulness, the way of the Buddha, the way that leads to liberation. It's a struggle between the two. And that's why even practicing the Dhamma in this way, we find, often we find ourselves sometimes mentally drained, sometimes physically drained, sometimes just frustrated with that struggle. So we have to know how to keep arousing the enthusiasm for the practice. To keep going back to our reflection on the Buddha and our teachers and the purpose, why we came here, why we came to do this. Keep arousing some energy and enthusiasm for this struggle there's no way around it if you're used to reacting to things with greed, anger, delusion then to change that Mm -hmm. requires a lot of internal energy, internal commitment to bringing up mindfulness and then reflecting on our experience You have one moment of craving arise if you can follow that up with another moment of mindfulness and that allows another moment of wisdom to arise, to look back at the craving and see it as impermanent, as not-self. If there's no effort to establish mindfulness then the wisdom can't arise, so the craving wins takes over the mind, strengthens itself and reinforces itself. you notice that's happening all the time. As soon as we let our guard drop, we relax for whatever reason, whether it's an excuse or we're tired or distracted. As soon as we let the guard drop, then craving will come back in different ways, over and over again. Maybe its objects change. So we come into the robes with one big act of renunciation when we ordain, and we do sacrifice a lot sacrifice our former lifestyle, our wealth, family, friends. But craving, you know, it's subtle, it's tricky. It's like like those different diseases that keep evolving they develop a remedy a cure an antibiotic or some kind of serum or something to deal with it and then the bacteria or the virus evolve again and they re-establish themselves in the world the are like that so we we've left a lot of things that formerly tempted our chalases our craving when we were lay people now we've come into the robes so they start to reform so we constantly have to be on the guard on our guard and see how even when we do do good things we keep precepts we help people we do good things for the monastery, for other people for society even that, that can become the basis for more subtle forms of craving pride, conceit to arise as we meditate and experience some calm because we are putting effort into developing mindfulness again the craving can come back into that the conceit comes up and this is me this is mine my peace, my bliss so we have to find some some ways to keep checking ourselves, coming back to reflect on our experience, keep bringing up the energy, the mindfulness, and then the way of reflection, always coming back to, always, always coming back to reflecting on the three characteristics, and even the deepest state of Samadhi or bliss, it's still a mental state. It has a beginning, has an end, it arises, passes away. It has its use because it gives us that clarity, the equanimity from where we can reflect. But we have to train ourselves in wise reflection coming out of any state of meditation, whether we have a little bit of samadhi or a lot. We have to keep looking learning from our experience, observing, mental states in the end all have one thing in common, is that they arise and they cease, they're impermanent. What arises, what ceases is unstable, unreliable, unsatisfactory, it's dukkha. But when we apply the three characteristics to our experience, and this is what liberates the mind because it knows this is the way things are. And this is where the mind sees the Dhamma, sees the Buddha. It doesn't lead to a sense of depression or giving up or losing enthusiasm for the practice. Quite the opposite brings one to understanding to see that this is a way that we can actually relieve the mind from dukkha from the effects of craving from this struggle and the more we can bring the mind to see impermanence see the lack of self in our experience and the more the mind this is going to free the mind As we keep practicing, you start to appreciate how it's. we have to keep developing mindfulness and keep putting effort into struggling with the craving, but we also have to keep developing the wisdom, this ability to reflect, observe our experience. You might say, say these are the two different aspects or two different parts of meditation: the calm, and the insight. And both need to, we need to develop an effort in both. Most people find you know, the intellectual side of Buddhism the the bit that attracts them. We can read, we can listen to talks, we can discuss the Dhamma, and it has its benefit, but. In the end, the kind of wisdom and understanding the Buddha was pointing to, it comes from experience. It's not something we can just reason or come to understand through thinking alone. We have to develop mindfulness and the states of calm as well. In the end, we have to develop these two things together. you with these reflections tonight.